I want to start by learning a little something about you folks, okay? Is that okay? I'm curious how many different, like, church backgrounds we have represented here. Because that kind of play into the kind of thing that I'm talking about, have been talking about, and the like. So, let's see. Do we have any folks here that were raised or have spent a significant part of your life religiously in the Catholic Church? That's a big number. Okay, cool. All right. So let's see. How about, do we have any folks with the kind of Episcopalian background? Okay, just, just one. How about, um, let's see, I got it. Lutheran. I know we have a few. Okay, we've got some Lutherans. Uh, Methodist. Methodist. A few Methodist. What am I missing? There's so many more. Do we have any pagans in the house? Yes. Good questions. Um, Presbyterian. My apologies. A few pres- Jewish. Or Greek, Greek Orthodox. Yes, that's important. The brethren. What am I missing? Who else? Seventh Day Adventist. Seventh Day Adventist. Protestant Congregational? Quaker. Okay, we got, let's see. Did I hear CMA? Did somebody say CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance? How, Mormon or LDS? Christian Science? Scientology, Jehovah Witness? Just real, any, any Baptist in the house? Just checking, just checking. Any Baptists? So I'm always fascinated with this kind of eclectic mix that happens in church world, particularly in the Keys, because sometimes people come down to the Keys and move here, and maybe the church that they're used to or attended most frequently or most recently isn't here, and so they have to adapt. And, well, so that's some of you, I would imagine. You're here today. Maybe it's just because you're on vacation and that kind of church that you were looking for isn't here, and maybe it's a convenience matter, I like the time of the service, or whatever, you're here. So what we've been doing for the last several weeks is kind of talking about the realities of church world as it applies to our church, more particularly our Baptist church. There are differences if you've come from other places on a few things, and today we're going to talk about maybe two of the things that are the most different in some ways, at least theologically or doctrinally, whatever word you'd like to use there, than others. And they are, um, well, let's, let's start with two words. Word number one is the word sacrament. Now, if you're from maybe a Catholic background, I don't know all the kinds of churches that use sacraments, but you understand the word sacrament. Um, sacrament is that which the church administers the right or routine or however you'd like to say it, that somehow conveys the grace of God to the one who receives that particular act. Um, I think there are seven in the Catholic Church of which on an exam many, many moons ago in seminary I could have named, but since this is not a graded test, right, I can't anymore. Now we as Baptists don't have sacraments. We use another word. We use the word ordinance. Um, Ordinance is 
much different than sacrament. Ordinance for us is a symbolic observance. And rather than seven, we as Baptists only have two things that we identify as ordinances. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Why do we do that today? Why do we do baptism? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Now, when we talk about ordinances, one thing you need to to understand is kind of how we decided historically to have these two things in our church. And there are really three qualifications um, for an ordinance to take root, and you'll see them in these two things. One, it was instituted by Christ, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper, two things that we see in his ministry. Second, it was taught by the apostles. So we're going to look today at some scriptures that show they taught these things. And third, it was practiced by the earliest Christians, by the early church. And again, since we'll be in the book of Acts a little bit, we'll see these sorts of things. So out of those things come these two rites, rituals, observances that we call ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So why do we do that? Again, I could say from the very beginning, this would be an easy sermon if I would just stop at because the Bible says so, because God commanded it, and he does. In fact, Matthew 28 is the first place we're going to start. Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, commonly called the Great Commission. Jesus' parting words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he gives them what we term this Great Commission. And in the middle of it is the first of the two ordinances we want to talk about, the ordinance of baptism, beginning in verse 18. Uh, The Bible records, Matthew, the apostle of Jesus, records this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And here's our word, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always even to the very end of the age. So as part of that commission, Jesus says in making disciples, one of the things we're supposed to do is baptize them. Now you notice the sort of Trinitarian formula, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you've probably seen a baptism service, you may have heard that formula. Just about any of those denominations or any of those religious expressions we talked about earlier, if you come out of one of those, you've heard that. Baptize you. In fact, I think I usually say when we have a baptism service, I baptize you, my brother or sister in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and off we go. Baptism is an interesting thing, though. Baptism is a, well, I'm going to use the word cop-out. See, baptism isn't a religious word. Did you know that? Isn't that exciting? You're like, well, wait a minute, preacher. No, baptism is a very ordinary Greek word. It shows up a lot of places. And the reason it's a cop-out is because as they were taking the New Testament, which was written in the language of Greek, and translating it into English, they chickened out. The Greek word for baptize or whatever, I actually found a way to type it. I was very excited. Learned something in word. Here it is. Baptizo. Did I get that right, Taki? See, there you go. I learned it. The emphasis was on the teeds. He learned it, and he speaks it. It's on the first syllable. Um, so, baptizo. Better? Almost. 
Thank you very much, sir. It's tough when you talk Greek and you have somebody that speaks it in the audience. Now, when the, the, they were translating the Bible, the New Testament, into English, Matthew 28, verse 19, and baptizing them, they came to this Greek word, baptizo, which I said wrong once again, and decided, what are we going to do with that? And they did not, in fact, translate the word from Greek into English. They transliterated, which means they took the Greek letters and made them English letters. So B, you can see, beta in Greek becomes B. Alpha in Greek becomes A. Pi in Greek becomes P. Tau in Greek becomes T. The iota becomes I. The zeta becomes Z or S, depending on how you want to spell it. And the omega becomes O. They just transliterated it. Why did they do that? I'm so glad you asked. Because they were scared. Because this word has a particular meaning. This word means to plunge, to wash, to immerse, to dip in water. In fact, there is a pickle recipe that has survived from 200 B.C. If you want some pickles, I would suggest a really old recipe by Nikander is the guy's name. That For some reason, this pickle recipe survived, and this is how you make pickles. The first thing you do is you take, I guess, the cucumber, and you baptize it in boiling water. And a little bit later, you take the cucumber, having been boiled, and you baptize it in vinegar. Now, if you were to read the recipe, when they translated it, it did not say baptize. It said to plunge or dip or whatever words you'd like to use. And you know what that means. When you take the cucumber and put it in boiling water, what are you doing with it? It's going all the way in, right? Baptize. Even more interesting is in the New Testament, this word shows up more than just in the context of what we think of as the religious process of baptizing somebody. In fact, it shows up in the book of Mark when the, the, the religious leaders always have the habit of baptizing their hands before they eat. Wash. Same word. Same Greek word. They don't translate it baptize. They translate it wash. But when they got to this particular usage in regard to when somebody has this religious process of being baptized, they said, well, if we say what it means, there are some people that won't like that because... They don't practice baptism in the way that would signify being plunged or washed. In fact, you may have grown up in a tradition where there's sprinkling or there's pouring or some other means of baptizing an individual. But the word itself has a particular meaning. So if you ever go to a Baptist baptism, you will see that we do what's called baptism by immersion. Or dunking. Right? So we, that's how we do it. Now, I t- I've told this story before. It's kind of my go-to story about baptism. So if you've heard it, laugh anyway. I was saved at a pretty young age, about seven years old. Grew up in a Baptist church. Um, and uh, went forward, professed faith in Christ, and was baptized on a Sunday night. And I remember it well. That was my pastor then 
resigned from the church and went away, Pastor Benz, and then a new pastor came in, Pastor C. Russell Clemens. I don't know why I remember that so well, but Pastor C. Russell Clemens was from Texas, and he was an evangelist, and he preached hard. When you think about Baptist churches, and you think hellfire and brimstone, I I picture C. Russell Clemens. And when it came time for the invitation, and he stood before you, he made a big point about being baptized by immersion. He preached it, he taught it, he said, listen, if you've never been baptized by immersion, you need to come down the aisle, you need to get baptized by immersion. Now, I had a problem. In my young mind, it's probably 9, 10, 11 years old at the time, I didn't know that word. And so what I heard was that you have to be baptized by a person who is a immersion. <laughs> and I did not know if Pastor Ben's had his Mersian credentials. And I was worried, if he was not a Mersian, if I should go forward again. Because obviously, Pastor C. Russell Clemens was a Mersian. Or he wouldn't preach it so hard. And so I asked my parents, and of course, you get the point. Immersion means to dunk, not person. Thank you for your indulgence. But nonetheless, I mean, that was troubling for my 10-year-old or so self. Like, ah, how does this work? And if, if you've been in different traditions, you know, that's something that there's different modes or means or methods of baptizing. We as Baptists practice baptism by immersion. One of the reasons is because of that word. We think more particularly that's what that word means. Any Greek lexicon, if you were to look it up, will have that kind of idea in it. This is what the word means, and so that's one reason we practice it. Another reason, and an equally important reason, has to do with the whole idea of what an ordinance is in church world. In Baptist church world, an ordinance is something which symbolically conveys truth. And for us, baptism by immersion more specifically and most particularly conveys the truth of salvation. Often another formula you'll hear used during a baptism service is one that I grew up with, probably see Russell Clemens because he's the one that made the most direct impact on my life. He would say when he would baptize somebody, Something like this, buried with Christ through baptism into death and raised to walk in his resurrection power. I don't think that was original with him. I'm sure a lot of people have used that. But that idea conveys the symbolism that baptism by immersion is to to convey. That symbolically we are identifying with Christ. That we, by placing our faith in Christ, as as the New Testament would say, behold, The old has passed away and the new has come. We've been buried. The old man, the sinful man is dead and buried and we're recreated, resurrected as brand new creations with new hearts, a soft heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone and all the things scripture points to. Those are the ideas that the symbol of immersion is to convey through baptism. And so if you ever see a a Baptist baptism, that's why we dunk or immerse people. It's an interesting thing. How did it go, though, from being a very common word that is such a part of religious experience of all kinds, no matter the means or the method that's done? How did it go from being something like, okay, it's just a word that means it's how you make pickles, it's how you wash your hands, to a particular rite of the Christian faith? And we owe a lot of that to a guy by the name of John. You see, uh, before the time of Christ, there were kind of in that region of the world, those who wanted to convert to Judaism. They would maybe travel to 
to Jerusalem or travel to, to Israel and see the faith and the monotheistic faith of Israel and, want, and, and feel an affinity for it, feel it had value, feel it's like something morally they wanted to become a part of. And so to do that, there was a rather lengthy process that you had to go through. Um, if you were a, a man, a fella, and wanted to be Jewish, you had to have a little surgery. That's why most converts were women. Not really. Not true. But you had to be circumcised. One of the things that had to happen. Um, you were to pledge allegiance to the Jewish law. You were to say, okay, I'm going to follow the law. I'm going to live by the law. Um, you had to make a sacrifice. Of course, sacrificial system in Judaism, very important. So you would go to the temple, hopefully, and make that sacrifice. You would participate in a ceremonial meal that would be very reminiscent of the Passover meal. That was kind of a key religious observance for Israel. And you would undergo a ceremonial washing. Now, interestingly enough, that washing was done privately. It wasn't a public thing. It wasn't done at the temple. It wasn't done in front of your family and friends. It was something that you would do. You would, in addition to all these other things, you would go apart and you would ceremonially wash and kind of, in a sense, say, okay, I'm, I'm washing off the sinfulness of the, the, the non-allegiance to the Jewish law, to the Torah, and I'm coming out kind of cleansed to follow this Jewish way of life. Well, then into that environment where that was a normal part of becoming a good Jew comes this guy by the name of John the Baptist. He must be good, right? He's called a Baptist. Notice he's not John the Episcopalian or John the Methodist. Just saying. Actually, there's a whole stream of Baptist thinking that says we are actually directly from him, and that's, I don't think that's the case, just one of those things. In fact, he's called John the Baptist because they watched him do something, and they're like, that's strange. We've never seen that before. John comes along, and he preaches a very particular message of repentance. He's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. God is going to do something brand new in your midst. And if you want to be a part of it, if you want to experience it, as I'm telling you about it, as I'm preparing the way for it, you need to repent and make yourself ready. And to do symbolically that, he went into the Jordan River. The river in that day and time would be sort of like the meeting place. Everybody went to the river. It was an important part of culture. It was an important part of their lives. They would go to the river. And there at that place where a lot of people would hang out, he would proclaim this message of repentance and invite anybody into the water to be baptized, to be washed, to ceremonially identify with what he was saying. And for the first time as people were watching that, in a climate where if you wanted to become a Jewish person, you would go privately and wash, comes this guy who's washing other people. And they're like, what do we call him? We've never seen anything like this. So they made up this word. Actually, they took the word baptize and added an ending to it to make up this, the place. I think the only place we see it in uh, kind of that period of time in language, he becomes John the baptizer. Fascinating, isn't it, that, that he made such an impression by what he did. It was so out of the norm of what they were used to that they kind of gave him that name to identify him with this particular practice. And so in many ways that comes and, and adds the religious element, the, the public religious element. Not only that, but early on in his ministry, or at some point in his ministry, he's there doing the thing that he does, preaching repentance, baptizing people, when along comes... Jesus. And he says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus asked John to baptize him. To fulfill all righteousness, he says. And so when we as as Baptists, when I talk to people about baptism, often talk about that, that, that we're following the example set by Jesus himself. And is a, a way to publicly identify, symbolically through this, this ritual of, of immersion or dunking, the reality that's happened in your heart. That you've come to know Christ Jesus as Savior. That you've asked Him for forgiveness. You've repented of your sins. You've turned to Him in faith. And that you recognize He has forgiven you. The old you is gone and you become a new creation. In Christ Jesus, in baptism, that washing, that dunking symbolizes it. Now, a lot of times in Baptist church, actually that's, when I say we didn't get our name from John the Baptist, we did get our name from another group, we think, from this group of people called the Anabaptists. And this you might could relate to if you're like not from a Baptist background. The Anabaptists in, in, in history were those who kind of had the same kind of beliefs we do about baptism and some other things, but they had a very particular thing. If you hadn't been baptized as an Anabaptist, you had to be baptized as an Anabaptist. Just a rule, like, got to happen. In fact, the, the name Anabaptist sort of literally means rebaptizers. And it wasn't like, oh, we want to compliment you. It was sort of like a dig. Oh, those are the Anabaptists. Your baptism is never good enough. You've got to be rebaptized by them. Interesting, huh? That's where we come from. <laughs> Baptist, nonetheless. And, and a lot of times that's the case. But, but one of the things that, that we, we emphasize, in addition to the, the means of baptism, the, I think the more important issue with baptism isn't necessarily the mean or means or mode of baptism. It's the timing. The timing of baptism, we believe, follows your profession of faith in Christ, which is why we don't baptize infants. A lot of different denominations, a lot of religious expressions baptize infants. They have a particular religious view or theological view about original sin and other things, and that's a very important thing. We, we don't subscribe to that. We don't baptize infants because we don't think, and this is kind of an important thing, that baptism is a sacrament. We don't think it's an act that conveys the grace of God or somehow brings salvation to the person who undergoes baptism. We think it's a symbolic thing that portrays what has already happened you know, that's kind of one of our, our things. Very sp- specific on that. Baptism doesn't save you. There was Jesus on the cross and the thief next to him. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, a lot of people make a lot over what is paradise and where is paradise and all that thing. Here's what I, I figure out. Where Jesus is, that's where I want to be. And if Jesus said to the thief, Where I'm going, you're coming, sign me up. And he was never baptized. So that's just one example. There are are other times in Scripture where that idea of the timing is important, where somebody is uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? They're they're along the way, and he's reading, and he doesn't understand, and explains it to him, and he sees a, a body of water, and what does he say? Why can't I be baptized? Why? Because he understood 
through Scripture, through the witness of the Apostle, through that moment that he had been saved by God and this symbolic act would demonstrate that for him. And so we think timing is the most important thing. Yes, we do talk about mode. I've spent a little bit of time today talking about the means, the mode of baptism. But the most important part is what happens inside, not what happens outside. Have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus, Savior and Lord? That's it. Baptism is symbolic of something that's already happened. It doesn't add to that. It just shows I'm identifying with this group of people, with this body of believers, with this Christ who I've placed my faith in. Here's something I wrote. It's the last thing in my notes, but I'm going to go there earlier. I think at times we need to free the ordinances from the church. What do I mean? Somebody asked me before, I have a friend, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're like nervous about coming up in front of all the people, and they want to know if I could baptize them. That's an interesting question. What's the preacher going to say about that? Here's what the preacher said. Go for it. Get together some people of like-minded faith so that this individual can affirm their faith in Jesus Christ and have a baptism service and celebrate it. Because here's the thing. If, if I baptize you, it doesn't make you any more saved than if somebody else baptizes you. Because, you know, we've been talking. I know, like, we've been doing the new members class, and a lot of you have been there, and you're like, this is sort of a repeat, sorry. But one of the, the Baptist, like, things is we call it the priesthood of the believer, which means there's no special class of people that are clergy, and there's a lower class of people religiously called the laity. There's nothing about my relationship with God that's any different than the relationship you can have with God. And just because I'm a preacher by trade, by vocation, by calling, doesn't mean I'm somehow closer to God than anybody else. So the fact that we're told this great commission, it doesn't say preachers, baptize in the name of the Father, Son. It says baptize them. You got somebody that wants you to baptize them? Go for it. Get some friends and celebrate. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe that's just me. I still might count it for my ACP. No, I'm just no, no, no. I'll give you the credit. You can turn in your own ACP. You're like, what's an ACP? Annual church profile. It's how we decide who the best churches in the world are. That's what it feels like. So that's ordinance number one. Ordinance number two is the Lord's Supper. We came in today. That's why we're doing this sermon today is because we're taking the Lord's Supper today. Another ordinance. Now, now this is um, something that we do as a church typically the first Sunday of the month at the end of the, the sermonic time. Sometimes we mix it up. We have the Lord's Supper together, another ordinance of the church. Um, why do we do it? Well, because as, as we go back, it was something that Jesus instituted. He gathered together with his disciples and he instituted it in a particular context. He instituted it in the context of the Passover meal. It was when he was in the upper room celebrating Passover with his disciples. It was Passover in Israel. 
as good Jewish men, they took the Passover together. And in that room, as part of the meal, he added meaning to the common elements that they were used to every year taking together. In fact, I think we'll do it this year. On Good Friday, we'll have uh, our Good Friday service will be sort of a mini Passover Seder. We've done it several times before. and We, we look at some of the traditional elements of the Passover Seder, and we sit around tables, and you have your Passover plate, and you all get to eat horseradish, and I laugh when you make that face. It's great because um, it's, you know, good stuff. And, and, and we go through the elements of a traditional Passover outside, like, the main meal. We kind of skip the eating. And you see, if you've been to that, that, you know, when we do the Lord's Supper, and we get to the end of our service, the deacons come forward, we pass out the bread, they come back, we eat it, we pass out the cup, they come back, we drink it, it's like lickety-split, done. But for them, this Passover meal would have been a process of two to three hours, potentially. And the bread was not taken immediately before the cup. The bread was taken at one point early in the meal. And it says in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the traditional place I use when we take the Lord's Supper together. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup. Not after, after the bread. No, after supper. They had the bread as part of their, their observance, remembering God's deliverance through the Passover. And later, after they'd had the main meal, they have four cups as part of the Passover. It was probably the third cup that becomes the cup that we celebrate as part of the Lord's Supper. It was instituted as part of a meal. And we get a glimpse into how the early church did it. In Acts chapter 2, just to, to blow through this real quick, um, Acts chapter 2, this summation statement of life in the early church at the end of the book, or the end of uh, the day of Pentecost, it's, it tells us this, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That idea of breaking bread is probably a term that would also include the, the, the Lord's Supper, the Passover type thing. Next verse. Everyone was filled with all, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Keep going. And all the believers were together, had everything in common. We just tell us that they sold their possessions and good, gave to anyone as he had need. Then this next verse is really where I want to hang out. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread, that technical term we think that refers to what we call the Lord's Supper. Some translations say from house to house or in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And I think the ending is the Lord added, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, I put this at the end, freeing the ordinance from from the church. Back in that day, they didn't just do it once a month in a service like this. From day to day, house to house, they went with other believers and around this common meal that they would have together. As part of that, they would include these elements, the broken bread that symbolized the body of Jesus, the cup that symbolized his blood, as part of their regular, let's get together and have dinner kind of thing. In fact, um, the book of Jude, chapter 12, calls that observance a particular thing. It calls it a love feast. How's that for an interesting idea? That what would happen is as these early Christians would get together, these agape feasts, and they'd have a meal together that usually included the elements that we call of the Lord's Supper, um, one of the problems is people were kind of infiltrating and sitting at their tables and leading them astray. That's the reason Jude wrote his short book there. But these Communion elements were part of just getting together. So here's, here's my thing. So right after you baptize your friend, 
invite him into the house, serve him dinner, and then have the Lord's Supper together. Wouldn't that be wild? Wouldn't that be crazy? See, because here's the thing. When, when we, and this is, may, I don't want to say to the shame of Baptists, but this is how through history as religion, as these ideas of sacraments became associated with the church and other churches broke off through the Reformation and other things, we kind of held on to a few of those things. We kind of said, okay, these are, these are religious things and rituals and rites, so we're going to hold on to them. And I think if we look at the earliest expression of Christianity, baptism, this symbolic act of identifying publicly with Christ, when somebody made a profession of faith, let's do it! And, and this meal, when they got together, as part of their, their regular meeting together, they said, this is so central to who we are. In fact, the reason we're together is because who Jesus is and what he has done by having his body broken and his blood shed, that we're going to include this just as part of what it means to be his people, to remind ourselves of that which unites us and holds us together and sends us out from this feast into this world that needs to know the love and the grace and the hope of the God who saved us. And so these elements, these things that we call ordinances, aren't the churches in the sense of the capital C building on the corner with the name and the sign out front. These ordinances are the churches. They're yours. They're they're what are given to you to express your faith in relationship with others to a God who acted in history to save you. So take them back. Now, keep coming to church. You could go back and re, you know, listen to that first sermon about why. Because this is important too. But this isn't the only place this has to happen. We're still going to do this together because this is, this is something that we identify with. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, probably the earliest place we have a record of the Lord's Supper expressed among the church. He said, look, be careful how you do this because really harsh language. He said, when you get together, your meetings do more harm than good. To the church at Corinth. Like you're having your, your church service and, and you might as well not. It's so bad, the effects. We don't want to be like that. We want to we do good. We want to use these things to say to you, okay, this is who we are. This is things we rally around. And then encourage you to rally around them in other places. Whether it's a backyard swimming pool or a, a restaurant table with some friends, to take these things that, that symbolically show us and identify us with a particular faith, with a particular Savior, and wherever they find meaning to use them. They're not limited to a particular place, a particular body. They're, they're given to the church as opportunity arises. Okay. So having said all that, what do you say we take the Lord's Supper together?